You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. As we deal with this coronavirus, it's important that we know the source of the virus, the one that's currently ravaging the world. I mean, if that source spawned this pandemic, it could spawn a future one. And of course, we want to stop future pandemics before they start. Well, science has a lot to say about the origins of this virus. But in some circles, science's message has been competing with an unusual, sensational claim. President Trump has asserted that the coronavirus escaped from a Chinese lab, and Secretary of State Pompeo went so far as to echo internet rumors that the virus was man-made. Neither gentleman has provided evidence to support their assertions. And without seeing evidence, there's no way to evaluate whether this idea is plausible, let alone correct. I mean, if proof is not required, you can say anything you want. So let's put the escape from the lab idea aside and take another approach to understanding the origin of this virus. After all, there is an explanation for which a lot of evidence exists. Our novel coronavirus is not the first from the coronavirus family to cause trouble. And the coronavirus family isn't just common in people. It's found in other species, camels, cattle, cats, and the focus of this episode, bats. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. Bats are thought to be the reservoirs for thousands of yet-to-be-discovered coronaviruses and a few that are now well-known. Tracking the origins of these viruses combines science with detective work. We'll hear what's involved, what kind of human activity triggers outbreaks, and why it's dangerous to pin the origin of the novel coronavirus on a rumor. Let's get started. To the Bat Cave! It's safe to say that many people are not totally at ease in the presence of a single solitary bat flitting about, never mind hundreds upon hundreds of them, beating their tiny little wings. But this scientist is not many people. I'm so comfortable with bats. I've just been working with them for so long and, and love bats as animals. His affection for bats and belief that they are anything but frightful took flight early in his career. I was catching bats out of a storm drain pipe that was about about six feet in diameter. It was a series of pipes. And I was standing about 10 or 15 feet away from the trap, but behind it, figuring that a few bats would trickle out, get caught in the trap, and we'd go in and, and release them. And what happened was thousands of bats came pouring out of this drain pipe. It was a much bigger colony than we anticipated, and I was suddenly surrounded. They were just streaming past me, yet none of them were hitting me. And I realized at that moment that these bats, they're not trying to attack or scratch or bite or anything, and they're so agile and maneuverable that they're just able to you know, fly around and move around you given the space. And it was that moment I just lost all fear if I ever had any. It was just that you know they're just trying to get away, do their thing. Meanwhile, his thing is to catch bats to test them for viruses. 
He then releases them, of course. My name is John Epstein. I'm the Vice President for Science and Outreach at EcoHealth Alliance. By training, I'm a veterinarian, but also a disease ecologist. So I really seek to understand how epidemics start, how the virus that causes an epidemic or a pandemic begins in its natural reservoir and makes the jump to people, either directly or through livestock. Working with bats in and of itself is pretty thrilling, and there's so many different kinds. You know, a lot of the bats I work with don't even live in caves, they live in trees, and those would be the, the giant fruit bats that are common throughout Asia and, and much of Africa. Uh, but going to a bat cave is its own kind of adventure for sure. Typically, these can be very large caverns. You're in a, a huge space because you have a headlamp and other lights, you can light up some of it, but not all of it. And the first thing you notice is the movement and the noise. You hear the chittering of the bats, the kind of high-pitched clicking and, and movement. And then as you look up, you can see them flitting and flying around. And because there's so many, it's almost constant movement. It's like being almost in a planetarium where the stars are all changing around and moving around. It's pretty dramatic. In these dramatic and isolated places, scientists are finding clues about how viruses infect human populations. Viruses jumping from animals to humans, that's not new. It's been happening for as long as we've raised livestock or, or even trekked into remote areas. To understand where the current virus came from, we have to go back to what was learned about the origin of the 2003 outbreak of SARS. Uh, the connection might be surprising. The virus that caused SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, was SARS-CoV. The virus that causes COVID-19, so named because it first presented itself in 2019, is SARS-CoV-2. CoV means coronavirus. It's all in the family, as they say. But it was only with careful detective work during the SARS pandemic the first pandemic of the 21st century, by the way, that Dr. Epstein and other scientists were able to rule out the suspected source, a raccoon-faced mammal called a civet. Initially, if you recall, civets were found to be infected with the same virus that was infecting people. And in fact, vendors in the markets who sold and handled civets had a disproportionately high rate of infection with SARS coronavirus. And so the link was made between civets and people, and it was assumed that civets were the source of the virus. And so what followed was a very public uh, showing of depopulating the markets of civets, of, of banning the sale of civets. There was a big extermination process. And then... Um, a study was done a little bit later by a Chinese group that looked at farmed civets, going out to farms in Guangdong that raised civets. And farms also brought in wild animals to supplement their stock. And what they found was that there was virtually no evidence of infection on the farms that were supplying the markets. Civets were not infected out on the farms, and in fact, were getting infected in the markets just like other animals and people. And it was at that point, that was a pivotal moment in realizing that we still don't know where this virus comes from. And so I was brought in with colleagues from China and Australia to think about what might be the natural reservoir. And early on in the investigation of markets, you know, bats were commonly sold in markets at that time. And some bats had been tested and found to have antibodies for this virus. Again, they may have picked it up in the market itself, but it gave us pause to think about bats as a potential reservoir. And so we started to test bats in the markets, but also identify wild populations of bats and start to test them as well. And it turned out that's where we ended up finding viruses that were related to SARS. When scientists identified the only mammal capable of sustained flight as the host for SARS, they went, well, somewhat batty. But before we further trace the origins of the current outbreak, let's find out just what's involved in getting information out of a bat. I mean, even if John Epstein admires his bat buddies, they still enter into this scientific partnership with gnashing teeth and flailing claws. Although Dr. Epstein says that actually the most dangerous thing about going into a bat cave is tripping on a rock and injuring yourself. Still, he prepares for the risk of infectious disease. 
Depending on the environment, we're certainly wearing personal protective equipment that includes, at a minimum, uh, a mask, a, resp- a filtered respirator that's going to protect our nose and our mouth, which are main routes of entry for viruses, eye protection to prevent splashes from any kind of bodily fluid that might uh, be infectious. We wear gloves. And with bats, we wear gloves that are particularly puncture resistant so that in case we're bitten, there's low chance that the teeth would, uh, you know, that the glove would break even if a teeth a tooth broke through the skin. And so just trying to think of, you know, all eventualities. And some of the bigger bats have quite large and, and strong jaws and, and sharp teeth. And so we really have to be careful about getting bitten as much as anything else. But the smaller bats, the type that we catch in caves, are, are generally small enough that we're not too worried about the physical injury as much as protecting ourselves from infection and uh, the physical hazards around. And what are you sampling when you sample these bats? Are you swabbing them? Are you grabbing their feces or are you taking them out of the the caves to draw samples of their blood what are you doing whenever i'm working with wildlife whenever our teams are working with wildlife or any animals our our main interest is our safety and their safety so we try to be minimally invasive minimally damaging to the to the animals that we're handling and the populations of animals we're working with and the main scientific questions we're asking in terms of understanding viruses and how they get out of animals and into people is what are the the roots of exit the roots of excretion so the type of samples we'll collect would be throat swabs to get a, a sample of saliva urine samples, fecal samples, we'll take blood, we'll take measurements of the animal. But after that, we're, then we release the animal um, and let it go home. And so the, the process of collecting samples is fairly quick, it might take about 10 minutes or 12 minutes for an individual animal. We have the individual animal in hand, so we know a lot about that animal whether it's male or female, its relative age, is it reproductive? In other words, are there pups uh, associated with the bat? And all this is important for the epidemiologic study. You know, some of the questions we ask are, what types of bats in a population are more likely to be infected? Which ones, you know, are more likely to be spreading this to other bats or potentially people? And understanding then the behavior of the animal helps translate into understanding risk to people or livestock. I want to find out how the bats do shed uh, the virus, but I have to ask what it's like and how one takes a swab, a throat, is it a throat swab of the, of the bat? How do you do that, John? How do you hold the bat's mouth open and what, you stick a, a Q-tip in its mouth? What do you do? Well, we essentially use pediatric swabs. These are sterile swabs. They're, they're tiny little, you know, cotton-tipped or polyester-tipped swabs on a little aluminum shaft. And we rely on the, the very basic fact that when you've got a bat in your hand, it gets a little bitey. <laughs> so there's a lot of opening and closing of the mouth. And we let the bat chew on that swab a little bit. And again, depending on the size of the bat, ideally we're getting the swab, you know, into the, the back part of its mouth. But essentially we would just want some saliva on that swab. So we let them gnaw on it a little bit and then take it out. And we put it straight into a preservative that will protect the genetic material of any virus that might be in that sample. And then we also carry um, coolers that are cooled with liquid nitrogen. So we can immediately put those samples into a deep freeze and, and make sure they're as well preserved as possible on their way to the laboratory. Oh my goodness. Is it hot work or is it cold work? Are you cold in those caves or are you hot in the personal protective equipment? Well, one of the best parts about working with bats in terms of that is you do it at night. And so even in a hot environment, you're getting the benefit of slightly cooler temperatures. But but I'll never forget working in Saudi Arabia, investigating where MERS coronavirus came from, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, where, again, genetically, we had linked this to bats because of its relatedness to SARS. And we were working in the desert and going into underground rooms in these kind of ruinous cities that were not hadn't been inhabited by people for a hundred or more years, but were well lived in by bats. And so we found these underground rooms and we were putting on full PPE in the blazing hot desert sun in the middle of the day. And that was about as hot as I've ever been wearing a hazmat suit um, and then crawling into these rooms that had, you know, in this case, hundreds of bats in a, in a small little chamber. So it can get pretty hot. Oh, goodness. Okay, so what is the answer? Which of these bats tend to shed uh, their coronavirus? And maybe equally as important, how do they do it? What part of their body sheds this virus? What have you learned? In bats, and and this is true in in most mammals, coronaviruses uh, are often a GI 
virus. In other words, they infect cells in the gastrointestinal tract. And so the virus is often shed in feces. So we find coronaviruses most reliably in fecal pellets from bats. We occasionally get it in, in throat swabs, but more often than anything else, it's fecal pellets. And that's good news because it actually allows us to get a lot of information by just testing bat guano without ever having to catch a single bat. We can still lay down uh, plastic sheets and collect bat feces and get information about the types of viruses circulating in that population without having to catch bats. And that's helpful. But when we have a bat and we're taking different samples, it's in the feces. And we also know that in bats, they tend to shed these viruses seasonally. So there's a there are particular times of year which varies based on the location when bats tend to shed coronaviruses. And we also know that it's a fairly short-term or acute infection in bats, similarly to as in people. So they might only be infectious for one or two weeks while they're shedding virus, and then their body clears the virus and they're no longer shedding for the majority of time until there's another little outbreak in the bat population at another time of year, and then bats can be infected and shed again. John, when you're doing your research, do you find yourself thinking like a virus, thinking like a bat, or thinking like a host? when you're trying to track down the origin of these diseases? That's an interesting question. I don't know if I've been asked that before. And I suppose the answer is it totally depends on what I'm doing at the time. When I'm trapping animals, I'm thinking like an animal because I'm trying to figure out what their behavior is going to be and where best to set up my traps and how best to catch them and how they're going to respond when I do. Um, when I think about protecting myself from the viruses they might be carrying, then I'm thinking like a host and making sure that I'm blocking any kind of route of entry that a virus might have into my body. So it totally depends. And then when I'm studying the genetics of a virus, then I start to think like a virus and try to figure out, you know, what are the differences I'm seeing at a genetic level that might account for the way viruses behave. Dr. Epstein mentioned looking at viruses at the genetic level, and so now we turn to genetics. SARS-CoV is one coronavirus found in bats, and we've since discovered many others. So what happened when we compared virus SARS-CoV-2 to them? It's To the Bat Cave on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. So where are we in this science detective story about the origin of today's coronavirus? Well, we learned more than a decade ago that bats were the source of the virus that caused SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And since then, scientists around the world have identified many more coronaviruses that are endemic to bats, says disease ecologist and virus hunter John Epstein. Key to the work done by his organization, EcoHealth Alliance, have been international partnerships. EcoHealth Alliance is a nonprofit, a science-based organization. We're based in New York City, and we work all over the world in about 25 different countries through local partnerships and alliances that allow us to study how epidemics happen from a variety of different disciplines. The organization scientists include veterinarians, epidemiologists, mathematical modelers, ecologists, social scientists, bat biologists, and even economists all contributing to the understanding of how diseases emerge and spread. Invaluable to our understanding of bat coronaviruses in particular has been EcoHealth Alliance's long collaboration with the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. 
Just in the course of the research we'd been doing together over the past 15 years, we had amassed a library of coronaviruses found in bats. And that laid the groundwork for zeroing in on the virus that was triggering a cluster of puzzling pneumonia cases in China in early 2020. The Chinese researchers quickly isolated it and sequenced its genome, identifying it as a coronavirus. Laboratories around the world verified the sequence, and the virus was given a name, SARS-CoV-2, or the novel coronavirus. Genomic sequence in hand, scientists began tracing its genetic heritage, much as you might do to establish your family tree. As soon as the genome of SARS-CoV-2 was released, our colleagues in China started scanning libraries of related coronaviruses that we had found in bats previously, and fairly quickly found one that was 96% similar. That kind of similarity suggested it was a bat coronavirus. The sequence of the 2003 SARS coronavirus provided the point of reference. The samples have been worked up at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So the the data we share, the samples themselves from bats are analyzed there. And the way the analysis is done is by looking at short fragments of the genome. So the virus isn't grown or cultured, but rather the samples come in and they're quickly scanned for a short piece of viral RNA, which is part of the genome. And we look for similarities to really SARS, the original SARS coronavirus. That was the benchmark we were using. And for things that were closely related, because we're interested in understanding the risk that other coronaviruses may spill over from bats and cause an epidemic, we wanted to look at those viruses that genetically appeared most closely related to SARS. And if there was something closely related, more of the genome might be sequenced so that we could place the the sequence on a family tree and see how it relates to the original virus. So I was just going to ask about that tree of these coronaviruses. And do they all lead back to a single coronavirus? Would that be the SARS coronavirus? Or are the origins of all these coronaviruses, do, do they extend back further? That's a great question. You know, the what you can do as you start to get more and more sequences in that family tree is you can ask questions about where is the the earliest common ancestor? You know, in other words, where did the splits in the family tree begin? And these viruses date back thousands, if not longer, of years in these bats. They've truly co-evolved. I'll note that lots of different bats carry different coronaviruses, and most of the coronaviruses we find in bats are not related to SARS. They could be in a totally different branch of the family tree. And we pay attention to the ones that are because we think those are the ones that have the most potential to spill over and cause outbreaks. But a lot of things have to go into a virus before it even has a possibility of causing disease in people. But some of the things we look at in the sequence that allow us to understand how a virus might behave is what strategy it uses to get into the cells of the host it's infecting. But viruses use particular cell receptors to enter into cells, and SARS and SARS-CoV-2 both use something called the ACE2 receptor, which is found both in bats, in humans, and in other mammals, both in the lungs and the intestinal tissue. So this virus has a, a broad strategy to infect different hosts. But what kind of bat was the source of COVID-2? With its 96% similarity to a known coronavirus, scientists concluded that COVID-2 likely came from the same bat family. Horseshoe bats, in particular, are a reservoir for SARS and related coronaviruses, and looks like they have the closest known relative to the virus causing the current outbreak. Interestingly, the viruses we first found from horseshoe bats, they weren't identical to SARS, but in fact looked like a grandfather or grandmother virus to SARS. They were ancestral. And it was really our first clue that these bats might be a natural reservoir because it looked like the SARS coronavirus was derivative of this or descended from the viruses we were finding in horseshoe bats. It looks like the horseshoe bat may be the original reservoir of SARS-CoV-2. Can you introduce us to this animal? We should probably get to know it a little bit better. What does it look like and what's an average day like for the horseshoe bat? Horseshoe bats are a family of bats. They're insect-eating bats that live in caves. They're very social animals, and they're about the size of a 
a mouse, maybe a, the, the length of your index finger. And they live uh, on the ceilings of caves. They go out at dusk and their populations can get into the thousands, tens of thousands, even bigger. And they go out and hunt primarily moths and, and beetles are the main things that they eat. And they hunt using echolocation. So they're, they're of the group of bats that use sonar to both navigate through the pitch black caverns that they live in, but also to, to detect and, and snatch insects out of the air. And one of the really important services that bats like horseshoe bats provide is eating agricultural pests. They eat insects by the ton. And so they're incredibly important to us. In fact, bats in general are for that very reason as pest control. And horseshoe bats are uh, found not just in China, but their range actually extends all the way across Asia to Eastern Europe. So they're a very abundant and wide-ranging group of bats. But John, what would the pressure be on this virus that would make a mutation uh, more adaptive? I mean, if it, the virus is living in harmony, I don't know if that's the word that you use, in bats, um, and yet there are hundreds of coronaviruses uh, or strains of coronaviruses, what pressures are coming to bear on that virus. It seems to be doing well without any mutations. That's right. So viruses adapt to their natural host over time, and eventually they reach that equilibrium or harmony where all the virus wants to do is to be able to persist or perpetuate. So that means infecting an individual, let's say a bat, and replicating enough that that bat can shed virus and infect another bat. The viruses all require a living host to carry on, to replicate and, and uh, infect others. And so there's very little selective pressure when they're staying within a single species. What happens is when different animals interact with each other or when animals and people interact and a virus then has an opportunity, a mechanical opportunity to transmit from its native host to a new host, that's where you start to get selective pressure, evolutionary pressure for a virus to change when it enters a whole new environment, a new physiology, a new immune system. And if a virus isn't already able to infect cells in that new host and replicate, then it just disappears. Okay, the, the immune system of that host takes care of it and it doesn't live on. But viruses that are already predisposed to being able to infect different hosts and replicate and be transmitted have the best opportunity to either adapt to a new host or at least temporarily use that host to make more virus. And so it's, it's wholly dependent on what the virus can already do from inside its natural reservoir. So that means that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of viruses, coronaviruses that went extinct. They didn't have what it took. Yeah, and will continue to. You know, the vast majority of viruses that we're finding in animals probably have no ability to infect people or other animals. They would be what we call host-restricted, where they can happily live in their natural host that they've evolved with, but beyond that, they're, they're pretty limited. And it's really a, a small subset of viruses, you know, writ large, that have the ability to invade multiple hosts and, and reproduce. How sure are we that, that the SARS-CoV-2 originated in a bat? We're hearing about other reservoirs such as pangolins, and for the first time I heard of an animal called a raccoon dog. Is it possible that the virus could have originated with one of these animals, or were they secondary hosts? I think the thought is mainly that they might be intermediate hosts or secondary hosts. The overwhelming evidence that we have is that bats, and specifically horseshoe bats, this one particular type of bat, um, is the host for a whole range of related coronaviruses that are similar to SARS and similar to SARS-CoV-2 and, and others in between. And so there's a lot of certainty scientifically that this virus originates in bats. And where the uncertainty lies is whether it passed through other animals on its way to people. And if it did, which animals would those have been? And so the, the reason pangolins have been talked about is that there was a finding by two separate groups of a coronavirus in pangolins that were part of the wildlife trades. Raccoon dogs and ferret badgers are other mammals we know are susceptible to SARS and SARS-CoV-2. So those are other potential hosts that could have acquired this virus and transmitted to people. But again, we have no evidence yet that that happened. You are a disease detective in a way that a detective might follow footprints or fingerprints. You're following um, the clues uh, that are embedded in, in the genome. And from one genome to another, you can track how these viruses move and how they evolve. There's a couple of lines of clues to follow. And one of them 
is genetic. Looking at the genomes of the viruses can tell us a lot of information about how those viruses change over time or if they're changing over time. But there's another line of evidence that's equally important to follow, and that's the epidemiology. So not just the genetics of the virus, but understanding who was where, when, and how they got exposed. How did the earliest cases of COVID-19 get infected? And some really important information came out from early investigations of that first cluster of 41 cases of pneumonia out of Wuhan. And it turns out that just over half of them had been to this seafood market, Huanan Seafood Market in Wuhan. But the other half of those 41 cases, particularly some of the earliest cases, had no exposure to that market. This is from interviewing those patients. And so the question is, where did they get infected? And there are a couple of different potential opportunities. Either they were infected by other people so perhaps there was community transmission happening earlier than the cases we first know about. And that wouldn't be unusual. That often happens in outbreaks of something new where you know, what you identify as the first case isn't the first case. Or perhaps they had exposure to animals elsewhere. And so these are big unknowns that need to be answered epidemiologically. And that goes hand in hand with looking at the genetics of the virus as well. So it sounds like there are two lines of evidence that uh, can give us insight into where this virus came from. To begin with, you have the, if you will, the DNA, the genetic evidence. And that is that the genome of the novel coronavirus is 96% identical to a coronavirus that had been found in a horseshoe bat. Uh, That's already pretty striking. And the second thing is the epidemiology how the virus spreads. They had those people who were afflicted with these early pneumonias, and there was a commonality in the behavior. Some of them had gone to the markets. Others, you know, had been in the neighborhood where bat viruses are known to spread. That's right. So those two areas of evidence provide a very strong case that the novel coronavirus came from a bat, and specifically a horseshoe bat. The other thing is, uh, you had asked, what was the evolutionary pressure that drove this spread. And of course, it was simply opportunity more than anything, a mechanical opportunity, as uh, Dr. Epstein called it, which is to say that there there was a chance for the virus to jump from one species to another. And for those varieties, if you will, of the virus that could do that and survive, they simply jump. They're not trying to jump, they just do. So, thanks to a lot of detective work, scientists can now say with a high degree of confidence that the virus that's now infecting humans originated in a horseshoe bat in China. But EcoHealth Alliance's work with Chinese scientists prompted the Trump administration to cut federal funding for the virus hunting organization. In 30 years of covering NIH from this city, I cannot remember a more blatant example of actual political knives out for a particular project at a time when it's desperately needed. So how has that affected their ability to gain important insight into future epidemics? That's next. We know we sound a little different during these days of social distancing, but we are still here and we thank you for continuing to listen to Big Picture Science. This episode, To the Bat Cave. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. We 
we heard about the important contribution that virus hunters at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China have made to our understanding of the coronavirus. The Wuhan Institute is in the news for other reasons. The Trump administration has asserted, without evidence, that our pandemic virus escaped from that lab. Well, as a scientist, I'd like to say more about this remarkable claim. Astronomer Carl Sagan popularized a version of an old dictum that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. In other words, if something sounds especially unusual or contrary to expectation, you'd better be prepared to back it up. But for some people, backing it up seems to mean just repeat the assertion or say that I could prove it if I wanted to. As we were producing this episode, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo slightly retreated from the claim he had made publicly a day before, that the virus was man-made or had escaped from a Chinese lab. He now said, we don't have certainty, but added that there is significant evidence that it did. But once again, no evidence was offered. The unsubstantiated idea that the virus might have escaped from a lab or was engineered is now getting heavy play, promoted on social media and by members of the Trump administration, including the president himself. So how do we decide what's true? On the one hand, and as you've heard, scientists have marshaled 15 years of genetic evidence about the coronavirus, which, together with the analysis by specialists, all point to a natural origin. This is evidence, and it's accessible to anyone who wants to examine it, including you. On the other hand, we have a claim with nothing offered to back it up. We could show you the proof, they say, but it's hidden. In logic, that's known as an argument from ignorance. Well, that's not good enough. And even worse, it's fertile ground for conspiracy theories, and those are not harmless. Today, in the middle of a pandemic, we need to trust in data and expertise. The stakes are high. The discovery during the 2003 SARS pandemic that bats can infect humans with novel viruses has had enormous implications for public health measures. But the unsubstantiated claim that our current virus escaped from a lab has also had dramatic consequences. The Trump administration abruptly terminated a National Institutes of Health grant to EcoHealth Alliance because of their work with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Meredith Wadman, a reporter from Science Magazine, has been following this story. So, Meredith, how has the science community reacted to the NIH, National Institute of Health's decision to terminate a grant that supported EcoHealth Alliance's work in China? The science community is angered and alarmed because this grant was summarily executed just not even one year after it was renewed for five years. And a renewal means that scientists independently have passed muster on the grant and said, this is worthy of funding, this is worthy of U.S. taxpayer support. And so it had gotten a great review, it was scored in the top 3% of grants, and yet it was just killed on a dime for no reason other than politics. That's kind of unusual, is it not, Meredith? Because if I get a grant from, I don't know, I probably wouldn't get one from the NIH, but I might get one from NASA or the National Science Foundation, and I'm doing the work, and I'm not falsifying the data. They never cancel the funding in the middle of the grant. It's highly unusual, and scientists are worried that it's precedent-setting, that this makes any grant that falls into, frankly, the president's bad books uh, ripe for culling. And that's just not how government-funded science is supposed to work. What reason did the National Institutes of Health give for uh, axing this grant? Well, initially, they tried to axe just the piece of it that was being conducted at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The first time they contacted the main researchers, the main grant recipients at EcoHealth Alliance in New York, they posited these concerns, allegedly, they said, about the Wuhan Institute of Virology not keeping up its very careful practices to 
make sure no virus escaped. So they cited this, quote, immediate action is necessary to protect the public interest. That, those were the words from NIH's deputy director of extramural research in the first instance. So he, he basically said to the New York researchers, you can't work with this Chinese scientist anymore. We don't want any contact. We don't want any money flowing to her. And they wrote back and said, fine. In fact, we haven't sent her any money since last year, and we will be sure not to do so going forward. And the NIH fellow, Mike Lauer, basically said, well, that's good. And the rest of the grant is not in danger. Then a week later, he just wrote and said, oh, we're killing the entire grant. Uh, NIH does not believe that its, its goals, quote unquote, align with agency priorities. It's just hard to feature how that is the case in the middle of a global pandemic, which is the exact type of pandemic that these researchers were working to prevent. Not only this one, but the next one and the one after that. So what was the reaction of the person in charge of the lab in China that was doing this work? Shi Zhengli, uh, I think she's the chief bat virologist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. How did she react? Well, she has repeatedly said that the whole pretense, by the way, for this cancellation is that somehow her carelessness or sloppiness is the cause of this current pandemic, and there's absolutely no evidence of that. And so she has commented to say, this pandemic virus did not come out of my lab. But she hasn't commented on the grant per se, and my sense is that the Chinese authorities are keeping a pretty tight lid on what she can or cannot say. Let me understand what this research grant was funding both in China and elsewhere, uh, the EcoHealth Alliance, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they were investigating the transference of a virus from bats, for example, to humans, right? Right. And so they were basically capturing bats in caves in southern China. They would capture them just long enough to collect feces, urine, uh, an oral swab, an anal swab that might hold unknown and undocumented viruses. And over the course of time, Dr. Shi has collected, in fact, more than 15,000 bat samples, and they're frozen in her lab. And from maybe 5 to 10% of those samples, she has defined a whole new universe of coronaviruses that we didn't know existed that are, are found in bats. Many won't ever infect humans, but some might have a propensity to do so. And she's working with lab dish experiments to figure out which ones are at risk for spillover into humans. What's more, they've been going into southern China to these villages very near these bat caves where people might be exposed and they've taken blood from folks in these villages and they've discovered that up to 3% of them have antibodies in their blood that indicate that yes, they have been infected by a bat coronavirus. So this is like a, you know, a landmine waiting to explode. They are trying to get ahead of the next virus spilling over into human beings. But now, at least NIH funding for that research has been shut down. I, it sounds so incredibly important, uh, given the current pandemic and the opportunity for future pandemics. So, you know, the, the conclusion that one would draw naively is that this was not a science decision. This was not a science-based decision. This was a political decision. But in science, which is, of course, international, uh, you know, political decisions shouldn't really count if you're talking about basic research. No, they shouldn't. And let's not be naive. To a degree, there's always going to be politics and science. But in, I don't know, 30 years of covering NIH from this city, I cannot remember a more blatant example of actual political knives out for a particular project at a time when it's desperately needed. Was this grant instrumental in any way uh, when it came to the testing of the antiviral drug remdesivir, which has shown some promise? Yes. Uh, two of the bat coronaviruses that Professor Shi sequenced became laboratory tools to test remdesivir. And one of the gentleman who actually worked launching remdesivir, Mark Dennison at Vanderbilt University, told me that uh, the, the drug would not have moved forward without this contribution of these two viral sequences from Dr. Schiff. A number of officials in the Trump administration, you well know, have suggested that the current virus escaped from the lab at uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. What, what do scientists think of that idea? Scientists concede the possibility 
It's not out of the realm of possibility. But the very strong probability, most scientists believe, is that this evolved naturally and jumped species naturally and had nothing whatsoever to do with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Is this simply a, a reflection of the lack of science understanding uh, in the administration? I mean, normally, you know, uh, the White House has science advisors, people who are scientists who can weigh in on these questions so that they, they're informed about them. Is, is this a sort of a deliberate shunning of science or is it uh, simply bad information or is it politically, uh, well, politically expedient to, to do this? It's the latter. It's politically expedient. President Trump has no end of excellent scientists he could call on to explain exactly what happened in Dr. Shu's lab and what did not, what we know and what we don't. And he simply doesn't call on them. Tony Fauci could explain to him probably better than I've done uh, what exactly uh, the events are that have led to this current juncture. And none of them that anyone has produced evidence for suggest that this virus just leaped out of a freezer in her lab and into the human population. Finally, Meredith, why is understanding the origins of the pandemic virus so important to combating future pandemics? I mean, do we really need to know where an enemy, even a microscopic enemy, comes from to battle it? Sure, we absolutely do, because you're not going to go to the hardware store for bread. You're not going to go start looking at lions or zebras for the next pandemic if we know that this came out of a bat and that bats, in fact, as the EcoHealth Alliance team demonstrated in an important paper in Nature in 2017, are the commonest host of these so-called zoonotic viruses that can jump from other mammals into humans. And so, yes, we want to know that it came from a bat. And in fact, the second installment of the now-canceled grant was going to use the time on that grant to go back and pinpoint the areas in southern China and the bat viral species in southern China that were most likely, again, to spill over in the future into human beings. So in some ways, it's a bit like learning that rodents were the vector for the plague or that uh, mosquitoes spread malaria. I mean, that, uh, that led to control of both of those uh, vermin. Sure, you're not going to put up bed nets to fight malaria unless you know mosquitoes are carrying it. Meredith Wadman, thanks so very much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Meredith Wadman is a reporter from Science Magazine. A link to her article about the NIH grant cancellation and to Jane Q's Scientific American article about the Wuhan lab are on our website, bigpicturescience.org. We asked John Epstein how the cuts in federal funds have affected his group's work in China. Well, it certainly directly prevents the work from continuing in China. And so uh, it, it doesn't you know, stop the work we're doing in general. We have other projects and other sources of funding that allow us to look at the risk of viral emergence from wildlife. But the particular loss of this grant impacts our ability to really understand what's happening in China and around China. And the sole purpose of that grant was to understand the risk of the emergence of related coronaviruses from bats into people. So it sets us back in our ability to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. EcoHealth Alliance wanted to understand the origin of this virus by studying it at its origin, a logical approach, but now funding for that has been cut. However, the group continues to study the risk that emerging viruses pose, and a crucial part of their work is the big picture of the types of human activity that give rise to pandemics. By and large, the majority of epidemics and pandemics happen because of people. We are the major cause of these events, and it happens in different ways, and we have a good understanding of the different ways it happens. But essentially, it's the way that people change the environment around us that influence the kind of contact we have and the frequency of contact we have with wildlife and our livestock has with wildlife. And so one of those activities, in fact, one of the most important activities that people do is land use change, which includes deforestation, but also includes altering landscapes, whether it's creating agricultural land next to pristine forest or urbanizing landscapes that were once um, inhabited by a bigger diversity of animals. All of these things shift and change the types of animals that live in that environment and the way that we have contact. And it's the dynamic process of land use change that's responsible for about a third of all emerging disease events. One of the descriptions I've read that 
that came from EcoHealth Alliance about the troubling role of deforestation in releasing these viruses is that you have kind of the outer forest and the inner forest. And when you start culling the trees that provide the buffer to the inner forest, well, exactly that. We don't have a buffer to the inner forest anymore. And humans normally, in any other situation, wouldn't have exposure to the animals and the viruses that are deep within a forest. Right. Do I have that right? Yes, absolutely. And and there's there are great studies, including one out of the University of Wisconsin, looking at malaria transmission and deforestation. And, and what they showed were satellite images of logging roads in the Brazilian Amazon. You get to these roads that are miles and miles long, penetrating into parts of forests that really have never been you know, seen by people. Maybe there are indigenous groups living there, but certainly not, you know, to the extent that they are in the process of deforesting. And what people do when they're camping at the end of these logging roads is they hunt wildlife and eat wildlife. And so now people are getting exposed to animals that they normally would never have contact with. They're butchering them, they're handling them. And that's exactly how viruses have an opportunity to move from a natural reservoir that might have been remotely living and deep in a forest to getting into people. Well, finally, John, this is not the last pandemic. We all wish it were. Um, I don't like ending on this note, but I know it's an important one. This may not even be the last coronavirus pandemic. So I wonder what what words you'd like to leave people with about either getting through this one or how to prepare ourselves for the next one. If there's a silver lining to this pandemic, you know, as a scientist, as a professional who thinks about how these things happen, it's that what has often happened in the past is that we've had epidemics and sometimes pandemics, like the original SARS, which made it to 26 countries, but there was a very limited group of people that experienced it directly. And so memory becomes short. We forget how costly, how damaging in terms of human lives, in terms of livelihoods, in terms of money, these epidemics are. The difference with COVID-19 is it's touching everybody. And so my hope is that the message is ringing loud and clear. So I hope that there will be a lot of discussion now and moving forward about what more we can do and how better we can invest in making sure something like this doesn't happen again. John Epstein, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. John Epstein is a veterinarian and a disease ecologist with EcoHealth Alliance. More information about his work and theirs is on our website. We've said this before, but it really bears repeating. There's a lot of misinformation about this outbreak, including pseudoscience remedies and numerous conspiracy theories. We've treated those in recent episodes, but not everyone is aware, so please encourage them to go with the facts, readily available at their local public health service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. Follow the science. We couldn't do this show without the help of producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thank you to them again for continuing to work on the show from their homes. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the mechanisms of biology. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners. This episode of Big Picture Science, To the Bat Cave. If you want to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, and you'll find links there to the guests you've heard. Now, go wash your hands. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.